0: This is a recording of "By the Blood, Ye Are Sanctified," the symbolic, salvific, interrelated, additive, retrospective, and anticipatory nature of the ordinances of spiritual rebirth in John 3 and Moses 6, written by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter: Journal of Mormon Scripture, read by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. Abstract: In Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, Jesus describes spiritual rebirth. Of cons- as consisting of two parts, being born of water and of the Spirit. To this requirement of being born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Spirit, Moses 6, verses 59 and 60 adds that one must be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, for by the blood ye are sanctified. In this article, we will discuss the symbolism of water, spirit, and blood in Scripture as they are actualized in the process of spiritual rebirth. We will highlight in particular the symbolic, salvific, interrelated, additive, retrospective and anticipatory nature of these ordinances within the allusive and sometimes enigmatic descriptions of John 3 and Moses 6. Moses 6, 51-68, with its dense infusion of temple themes, was revealed to the prophet in December 1830, when the church was in its infancy and more than a decade before the fullness of priesthood ordinances was made available to the saints in Nauvoo. Our study of these chapters informs our closing perspective on the meaning of the sacrament, which is consistent with the recent re-emphasis of church leaders that, quote, The sacrament is a beautiful time, not just to renew our baptismal covenants, but to commit to him to renew all our covenants, end of quote. We discuss the relationship of the sacrament to the showbread of Israelite temples and its anticipation of the heavenly feast that will be enjoyed by those who have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. INTRODUCTION What does it mean to be born again? One of the most illuminating stories in the Gospel of John tells of Nicodemus' private visit to inquire of Jesus. John portrays Nicodemus as a prime example of one of those who had initially believed in Christ's name when they saw the miracles which he did, but, as John explains, Jesus did not commit himself unto such, because he knew all men, and he knew what was in man. Though Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, and a master of Israel, he struggled to grasp the meaning of what Jesus tried to teach him. In contrast to the untutored woman of Samaria in the following chapter of John, who met the Lord in the brightness of high noon, Nicodemus, then a blind leader of the blind, came to Jesus in the darkness of night. Happily, however, the day dawned, and the day star arose in his heart. Nicodemus must have eventually experienced the birth from above that he did not at first comprehend, for John tells us that at great personal risk he later defended. Jesus before the chief priests and the Pharisees and help prepare the Lord's body for burial. Like the humble Peter, whose early foibles are candidly presented in the Gospels, Nicodemus was not ashamed to share the private story of his transformation from wondering skeptic to devoted disciple. Indeed, it is possible that he was John's eyewitness source for the account that we will now discuss in more detail. Nicodemus opened the conversation with Jesus. His use of the pronoun we in the statement that we know that thou art a teacher come from God revealed that he was not merely speaking for himself but also for the governing body of the Jews to which he belonged. As the basis for the council's belief that Jesus Jesus was a teacher come from God, Nicodemus explained no one is able to to do the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus did not affirm Nicodemus' declaration. Instead he countered it with a parallel assertion. No one is able to see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The Master was saying that Nicodemus and his brethren were mistaken in taking Jesus' miracles as the basis for the confidence in him as a divine teacher. Though they had seen these signs, they did not see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God, and eventually to enter within it, said Jesus, one must be born again. Indeed, Joseph Smith taught that seeing the kingdom of God is a prerequisite for permanently entering into it. He further clarified that even to begin to see the kingdom of God, quote, from the outside, in the sense of actually acquiring an inner, initial spiritual understanding of it, individuals must have, quote, a change of heart, a portion of the spirit that would take the veil from before their eyes, as was later experienced by Cornelius. At First, however, Nicodemus resisted Jesus' invitation to behold, with an eye of faith, those things which are within the veil. That said, Nicodemus' astonishment at Jesus' teaching was not an entirely negative thing. In later rabbinic literature, marveling or wondering formed an important part of the process of gaining knowledge. For example, it was said of Rabbi Akiba that his learning began with wonder and culminated with a crown, a symbol of his power to bring hidden things to light. Thus Jesus' words to Nicodemus that night, Marvel not, should not be understood as a peremptory dismissal of his interlocutors' initial doubts, but as a spur to his further faith and inquiry, as in his later directive to the wondering Thomas, Be not faithless, but believing. Nevertheless, up to that moment Nicodemus had not had a change of heart. His eyes were still veiled. As a test of Nicodemus' powers of spiritual perception, Jesus had used a double entend, or double meaning, in his discussion on the subject of being born again. The Greek word anoten and the corresponding Aramaic Syriac expressions bar de riche and men riche, can mean both again, a second time, and also from above, literally, from the head. Each time Jesus reported, repeated the requirement for all men to be born from above, or in other words, born of the Spirit. Nicodemus heard only the most obvious superficial meaning of the Savior's saying, namely, that one must be born again, or rather, born of the flesh, mistakenly thinking that Jesus meant coming forth a second time from the mother's womb. Gently rebuking Nicodemus' lack of understanding, Jesus continued in verse 8 with a play on words that exploited the double meaning of wind and Spirit in both Greek Numa and Hebrew Ruach. Although the invisible, immediate workings of the wind may be indirectly perceived by means of its sound, it is beyond the power of physical sensation to reveal quote, whence it cometh or whither it goeth. This being the case with earthly wind, what hope has any mortal, save he is born from above, to understand the movements that are governed by the unseen divine winds of God's spirit, crucially including Jesus' own? celestial comings and goings Jesus description of those who are vaguely sensible to the evidences of the earthly wind yet stone blind to the hidden operations of the divinely discerned heavenly spirit parallel his prior disavowal in verses 2 and 3 of those who see the superficial signs of his mission yet lack the spiritual vision required to see the kingdom of God Jesus then directed his remarks more pointedly at Nicodemus and his brethren Indeed, John's phrasing of verse 11 seems to connect Nicodemus' prior use of we in reference to the earthly council to which he belonged with Jesus' use of the pronoun we in reference to himself and his prophetic predecessors who had also borne eyewitness testimony of the heavenly council. Quote, verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye a plural pronoun referring to the Sanhedrin and its partisans, ye receive not our witness, end of quote. As Nicodemus surely realized, Jesus' testimony implied not merely that he had seen the divine counsel, but also that he had there received a divine commission, as echoed in the experience of Isaiah 6, 8, quote, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Next, intensifying the drama of the dialogue, Jesus further described his commission. In doing so, he made it clear what it was not only to be justified and sanctified by water and the Spirit, but also to be lifted up with power to traverse the veil in both directions as the Son of Man. Once again, the Lord's elaboration simultaneously disclosed and obscured his meaning. Quote, And no man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. To comprehend the meaning of "lifted up" from the Greek word hypso, in Jesus' words, we must first realize that in the study, of, in the story of Moses. Neither the serpents that bit the Israelites, nor the figure on the standard that was lifted up by Moses, were meant to be seen only as ordinary desert snakes. Rather, they are described in the rich language of the Old Testament symbolism, with the same Hebrew terms used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to the glorious seraphim, proximal attendants of God's throne, and preeminent members of the divine council. If we fail to connect the fiery flying serpents that were both the plague and the salvation of the children of Israel with the burning godlike seraphim of the heavenly temple we will lack the interpretive key for Jesus central teaching to the Nicodemus once we realize in another double entendre Jesus has not only prophesied his atonement and death but also has compared himself as the son of man to the seraphim that surround in intimate proximity the throne of the father the meaning of his statement that he was to be lifted up becomes apparent in temple context The essential function of the seraphim was similar to the role of the cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. They were to be sentinels, or keepers of the way, guarding the portals of the heavenly temple against unauthorized entry, governing subsequent access to increasingly secure compartments, and ultimately assisting in the determination of the fitness of worshippers to enter God's presence. Thus Jesus lifted up to God's throne as the better of all the seraphim and the innermost keeper of the gate could literally and legitimately assert, quote, "No man cometh unto the father but by me." Jesus' application of the phrase "lifted up" to himself is appropriate for other reasons. For example, the idea of his being lifted up ties back to Isaiah 52:13, a passage from a messianic servant song. Quote, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. End of quote. Isaiah's language in this chapter describes both the suffering and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Significantly, however, in the Book of Mormon, the resurrected Jesus Christ himself applies Isaiah's description of a suffering servant to the prophet Joseph Smith. And the Book of Moses applies similar language to Enoch. Thus it is clear that others, in addition to Jesus Christ, can be lifted up, becoming sons of man, and receiving everlasting life, through unwavering faithfulness in the trial of their faith. This is consistent with the explicit teaching in the first chapter of John that, quote, As many as received Christ, to him they keep, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, in other words, to be born of God in the ultimate sense. Note that the Greek phrases, for sons of God, and here used here, techneteo, as well as Hebrew equivalent, bene ha Elohim," are gender neutral in this and similar contexts. Although it would be possible to substitute the neutral term children of God in its place, we prefer to use the term sons of God, or exceptionally when citing the discourse of King Benjamin, sons and daughters of God. Although the Church teaches that every mortal, in the beginning, was a child of heavenly parents, there is a distinction made in the Gospel of John and elsewhere in Scripture in which only the most faithful of God's offspring are given power to become the sons of God. In short, whereas some readers equate the lifting up of Christ exclusively with his suffering in Gethsemane and his death on the cross, the means by which whosoever believeth in him may be sanctified and receive everlasting life through the shedding of his blood, a more careful examination of the passage makes it clear that John is exploiting a double meaning in the term lifted up. Should there be any doubt about the presence of subtle literary artistry in John's account, consider the explicit confirmation of similar deliberate wordplay in 3rd Nephi 27. Within two verses, uh, the sa- resurrected Savior, aptly and seemingly effortlessly, among shifts among multiple senses of lifted up, including lifted up upon the cross, lifted up by men in unrighteous judgment, lifted up by the Father in righteous judgment, and ultimately, lifted up at the last day in exaltation. Similarly, in John 3, the lifting up of Jesus has as much to do with his heavenly ascent and glorious enthronement as it does with his ignominious death. Hence, according to Hermann Ritterbos, the crucifixion is not presented by John as Jesus' humiliation but as the exaltation of the Son of Man, a birth from above that he intended to share with his disciples. Thus, those who look and begin to believe in the Son of God, as he is typologically revealed in the seraphic figure that has been lifted up, will themselves, if they endure to the end, receive eternal life, being lifted up, or in other words, exalted, with their Lord. As a witness that the prophet understood the implication of Jesus' words to Nicodemus as we have interpreted them here, a note pinned to the NT2 manuscript of the Joseph Smith Translation of the last verse of John 3 reads in part, He who believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and shall receive of his fullness. The experiences that allow disciples to receive of his fullness extend beyond the initial ordinances of divine rebirth And the accompanying spiritual enlightenment that would allow them to begin to discern the kingdom of God from the outside, eventually permitting them to see it from within. Consistent with Jesus' expectation that Nicodemus, a master of Israel, should have already been familiar with this line of interpretation, there is evidence that some early Jewish exegetes in the more mystic tradition may have also understood seeing God's kingdom in terms of visionary ascents to heaven, witnessing the enthroned king. Moreover, the Jewish scholar Philo, a near contemporary of Jesus Christ, declares that the Sinai revelation worked in Moses a second birth, which transformed him from an earthly to a heavenly man. Jesus, by way of contrast, came from above to begin with, and grants others a birth from above. Some scholars have argued that Philo's ideas about a new birth that transforms earthly man to heavenly man may have been reflected in Jewish ritual at Qumran and elsewhere. Such rituals seem to have enacted the liturgical equivalent of actual heavenly ascent. As has been detailed elsewhere in connection with the 3rd century A.D. synagogue of Dura-Europos, one of several plausible narrative foundations for such ritual was the vision of the resurrection of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Donald Carson observed that although many Old Testament writers look forward to a time when God's Spirit will be poured out on humankind, The most important of all these is Ezekiel. Carson points out that in Ezekiel 36 verses 25-27, as in John 3, water and Spirit come together so forcefully, the first to signify cleansing from impurity and the second to depict the transformation of heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. And it is no accident that the account of the Valley of Dry Bones, where Ezekiel preaches and the Spirit brings life to dry bones. Follows hard after Ezekiel's water spirit passage. End of quote. The culminating passage of Ezekiel thirty-seven, like that of John three, promises exaltation and eternal life to the faithful. This promise is to be fulfilled through a new and everlasting covenant. In imagery, the parallels chapters one and twenty-one and twenty-two of the book of Revelation. The Lord promises that in the future day of their salvation, Israel will be called His people meaning that they will be called by his name. They will be sanctified, and that his sanctified will be in the midst of them forevermore. Going further, Carson observes that, quote, Israel, the covenant community, was properly called God's, God's son, end of quote, an idea that can be extended not only corporately, but also individually, as described, for example, in Psalm 2.7 and Moses 1.4, 6.68. In chapter 16, Ezekiel describes unfaithful Israel as an abandoned female child on whom he had taken pity. When first born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. However, using the Israelite terminology of adoption and marriage, the Lord relates that he looked upon fledgling Israel with pity, spread his skirt over her to cover her nakedness, and entered into a covenant so that Israel could become his own. The passage continues in terminology reminiscent of royal investiture and exaltation, with conceptual roots in the first temple that will recall for Latter-day Saints the symbolism of modern temples. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin. I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk, and I put a beautiful crown upon thine head. In reflecting on Jesus' words, Nicodemus might have recalled prophetic passages like these that describe spiritual rebirth in anticipation of the eventual fulfillment of God's promise to Moses that Israel as a body eventually was to become, quote, a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. In summary, A careful reading of John 3, using modern linguistic evidence and considering relevant threads in Jewish scripture and tradition, makes it clear that being born again, or rather being born from above, or born of God, is not a process that is completed when one is baptized by water and receives the gift of the Holy Ghost. Being ritually reborn requires receiving and keeping all the ordinances and covenants of the priesthood to the end. Being fully reborn in actuality happens only after traversing the heavenly veil to know the only true and wise and and true God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent, having both suffered in his likeness and also having been lifted up to eternal life and exaltation as he was. In other words, to qualify for eternal life, each of the father's children must be prepared to enter the kingdom of heaven as a son or daughter of God, having been born again by water and by the Spirit of God through ordinances, in similitude to their Redeemer, the Son of God, their peerless, perfect prototype. Having concluded from our study of chapter 3 in the Gospel of John that being born again in its full sense describes a process that begins before baptism, when one begins to see the kingdom of God from afar off, and culminates with the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life itself in the world to come. The remainder of this article will draw additional, complementary details concerning the process of spiritual rebirth that are available through a close reading of Moses 6, through, 58, through 68 in light of relevant scripture and prophetic teachings. First, we will provide a brief overview of the setting, structure, and burden of these verses. Then we will conclude with a deeper examination of the issues and insights relating to three key phrases of Moses 6.60, one by one. By the water ye keep the commandment, by the spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified. When discussing temple-related matters, we will follow the model of Hugh W. Nibley, who was, according to his biographer Boyd J. Peterson, quote, respectful of the covenants of secrecy safeguarding specific portions of the LDS endowment, usually describing parallels from other cultures without talking specifically about the Mormon ceremony, end of quote. The setting, structure, and burden of Moses 6 verses 51 to 68. Hugh Nibley describes Moses 6:51 6, through 68 as an excerpt from the Book of Adam. Perhaps it formed part of the Book of Remembrance mentioned in Moses 6:46. The setting for these verses is a sermon by Enoch. A notation in the handwriting of John Whitmer in the OT1 manuscript above Moses 6:52b reads the plan of salvation. The verses that follow were sometimes cited by early leaders of the Church as evidence for the continuity of the plan of salvation from the time of Adam and Eve to our day. Verses 51 through 68 form a structure of several parts. The introduction, verses 51 and 52, is a first-hand statement from God the Father, wherein He, as the Maker of the world and of men, summarizes the commandments underlying the plan of salvation namely to hearken believe repent and be baptized then in verses fifty three through sixty he motivates the commandments one by one in reverse order within a succession of ladder-like rhetorical cascades that culminate in a promise of sanctification through the blood of his only begotten it should be understood that the sure knowledge provided by the record of heaven that is promised to adam and eve in their posterity in verse sixty one is more than a prefatory witness that comes to those who have received the Holy Ghost. Indeed, elsewhere, Joseph Smith equates the power which records with the sealing power, or in other words, the power that, quote, binds on earth and binds in heaven. Consistent with this idea, in the OT2 manuscript of Moses 661, this comforter is described as, quote, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In response to God's explanation of the plan of salvation, as it is termed in verse 62, Adam hearkened without hesitation to the voice of the Father by obeying the commandments that he had been given, as outlined in verses 64 and 65. In return for the witness of Adam's covenant, given at his baptism, he receives the promised record of heaven, described in more detail in verse 66 as the record of the Father and the Son that was declared, through a voice out of heaven. Having had all things confirmed unto him by an holy ordinance, Adam was born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Spirit, and cleansed by blood, having become a son of God in the full sense of the term. Elder Theodore M. Burton's explanation of the event leaves no room for doubt about the nature of the occurrence described in verse 68, Thus Adam was sealed a son of God by the priesthood, and this promise was taught among the fathers from that time forth as a glorious hope for men and women on the earth, if they would listen and give heed to these promises. End of quote. Relying this, Relating this event to the sequence of ordinances and blessings that led up to it, Hiram L. Andrews further explains, quote, To receive such communion, ordinarily one must be justified, sanctified, and sealed by the powers of the gospel unto eternal life. End of quote. In other words, Moses 6.68 witnesses that Adam received the more sure word of prophecy. After declaring the sonship of Adam, the father solemnly averred that all the posterity of Adam and Eve, both men and women, must follow the same pattern in order to be born again. thus, in other words, by doing as Adam did, may all become my sons. End of quote. Spiritual Rebirth by Water, Spirit, and Blood. Having outlined the meaning and import of Moses 6:51 6, through 68 as a whole, we will now examine the interrelated symbolism of water, spirit, and blood that is highlighted in verse 60. Hugh Nibley summarizes the significance of these three elements as follows. Quote, the water is an easy act of obedience. By the water you keep the commandment. I know not, save the Lord commanded me. That's your sacrifice. Then by the Spirit you are justified. That's the Holy Ghost. You've got to be baptized physically, but then it goes beyond that to the Spirit, where, after having been confirmed, you begin to understand and become aware of what's going on. Then the last thing is, And by the blood you are sanctified. You can't sanctify yourself, but by completely giving up life in this world, which means suffering death which means the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood is your final declaration that you are willing to give up this life for the other." As we will discuss in more detail later on, the temple sacrifices of ancient Israel, which pointed back to Isaac's arrested sacrifice and pointed forward to Jesus' unarrested sacrifice, the people were to see their own arrested sacrifice and redemption, having been spared the shedding of their own blood through the atonement of Christ. By means of these sacrifices, ancient Israel could be brought to see the kingdom of God. Likewise, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened after their transgression, and they saw their redemption in the garments of skin that God made for them, and in the sacrifices that he commanded them to make. In similar manner, the Latter-day Saints are meant to see the kingdom of God in the sacrament. By the water ye keep the commandment. Let us now survey six topics that provide some idea of the richness of ancient traditions in and modern, uh, modern revelation relating to the water ordinances of baptism and washing. 1. Baptism as a commandment and as an introduction to the law of, of obedience. Baptism by water is often described in scripture as a commandment, both a means to demonstrate obedience to the divine directive to be baptized, and also a sign of willingness to keep the law of obedience with respect to all God's other commandments. For example, Nephi described the baptism of the Savior as a witness to his father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Alma exhorted the people of Gideon to enter into a covenant with God to keep his commandments and witness it unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism. And Mormon taught that, quote, Baptism is unto repentance in fulfilling the commandments unto the remission of sins. Significantly, the blessing on the sacrament bread also specifies that those who partake witness in doing so that, quote, they are willing to keep his commandments. This direct association between the sacramental bread and baptism is reinforced by the pointed omission of a reference to keeping the commandments in the companion blessing on the emblems of the Lord's blood. In addition, only the blessing on the bread mentions that those who partake must be willing to take upon them the name of the Son. An initial promise that, as Elder David A. Bednar taught, clearly contemplates a future event or events and looks forward to the temple for its fulfillment. End quote. The distinctive symbolism of the two parts of the sacrament will be addressed later. Lawrence Spendlove points out that the first meaning of partake in Webster's 1828 dictionary is, quote, to take a part, portion, or share in common with others, to have a share or part, to participate. He comments, quote, We all share in common or participate in the benefits that come from the death and resurrection of Christ, as symbolized by the bread, in that we will all resurrect from the dead, End of quote. Of course, since we expect to partake in the common benefits of the Atonement of Christ, we should also expect to partake in the common effort to invite and persuade, by word and example, all men and women, to enjoy the full blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This joint participation in the work of salvation is sometimes expressed in the King James New Testament with the word fellowship, Greek koinonia. Fellowship describes the intimate relationship between the Savior and his disciples, who must partake of what he suffered in order to partake of his glory. With this in mind, the importance of the commandment for all people to be baptized cannot be overstated. However, Joseph Smith taught that unless those who are baptized have truly repented of all their sins and have received the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, their baptism is, quote, good for nothing, being of no more use than a bag of sand had been baptized in their place. The teachings of the prophet are a reminder that there is no magic in earthly elements to cleanse us from sin neither in the water of baptism itself, nor, strictly speaking, in the physical act of eating and drinking the emblems of the sacrament. As President Brigham Young explained, Will the bread administered in the ordinance of the sacrament add life to you? Will wine add life to you? Yes, if you are hungry and faint, it will sustain the natural strength of the body. But suppose you have just eaten and drunk till you are full, so as not to require another particle of food to sustain the natural body. In what consists, then, the benefits that we derive from this ordinance? It is in obeying the commands of the Lord. When we obey the commandments of our Heavenly Father, if we have a correct understanding of the ordinances of the house of God, we receive all the promises attached to obedience, rendered to his commandments. It is the same in this as it is in the ordinance of baptism for the remission of sins. Has water in itself any virtue to wash away sins? Certainly not but keeping the commandments of God will open the way for the atoning blood of Christ to cleanse away the stain of sin. End of quote from Brigham Young. 2. Baptism as the gate to the pathway that leads to eternal life. Latter-day Saints know that repentance and baptism are symbolized in Scripture as a gate, the essential access point of the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. In order to eventually enter the kingdom of God, which that path leads, each disciple must additionally receive and keep every other law and ordinance of the priesthood, quote, and continue in the path until the end of the day probation, end of quote. As Elder David A. Bednar expressed, this idea, quote, total immersion and saturation with the Savior's gospel are essential steps in the process of being born again, end of quote. Associating the gate of baptism with all subsequent laws and ordinances of the priesthood, Joseph Smith made it clear that baptism was not only a commandment, but also a sign. Quote, baptism is a sign ordained of God for the believer in Christ to take upon himself in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is a sign of command which God has set for man to enter, and those who seek to enter in any other way will seek in vain, for God will not receive them, neither will the angels for they have not obeyed the ordinances, nor attended to the signs which God ordained for man to receive in order to receive a celestial glory. There are certain key words and signs belonging to the priesthood which must be observed in order to obtain the blessing. Had Cornelius not taken these signs or ordinances upon him and received the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands according to the order of God, he could not have healed the sick or commanded an evil spirit to come out of a man and it obey him. For the spirits might say unto him, as they said to the sons of Siva, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who are ye? 3. The Antiquity of Water Symbolism in Rituals of Rebirth We will not attempt to summarize the varied and controversial histories of the water rituals of purification, penitence, and proselytism in Jewish and Christian traditions. It is sufficient to say that no credible scholar today doubts that immersion was practiced by Jews for various religious purposes in pre-Christian times, nor would deny that immersion was the standard form of baptism in the early Christian Church. With respect to traditions concerning the antiquity of baptism, we note in passing that not only the Book of Moses, but also several Islamic, Christian, Mandean, and Manichaean accounts speak of the baptism of Adam and Eve. Some scholars, including Stephen D. Ricks and David J. Larson, have argued that the water symbolism of baptism is better understood when it is compared and contrasted with the separate rituals in ancient Israel wherein the king was washed and anointed, both prior to his initiation and also at regular renewals of his right to rule. For example, Larson writes, We learn from the Bible that the king was washed and purified, likely at the spring of Gihon, he was anointed on the head with a perfumed olive oil that was kept in a horn in the sanctuary. He was clothed in robes and also wore a priestly apron, or ephod, sash, and diadem, or headdress. Finally, the king was consecrated a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of quote. Relative, relevant context for understanding these practices can also be found in the religious literature of ancient Mesopotamia. For example, in the story of Atrahasis, we can trace the basic conception that water, spirit, and blood, the latter derived from the body of a slain deity, were the life-giving elements used by the gods in the creation of humankind. In the seal of Gudea shown here, the bareheaded and nearly naked Gudea is introduced by a mediating go- deity to a seated god. The mediating god presents a face featuring a seedling and flowing water to the seated god. Water flows from the seeded God himself into flowing vases, no doubt anticipating the sprouting of seedlings that have yet to appear. The scene suggested is one of rebirth and transformation. Drawing on the phraseology of the Gospel of John, we might conjecture that having been born of water, the King, in likeness both of the sprout within the flowing vase and the God to which he is being introduced, is also to become a well of water springing up unto eternal life. A sculpture of Gudea attests to just such an interpretation, where Gudia himself is shown with his head now covered, holding a vase of flowing water in likeness of the seated god shown here. A comparative analysis of the rituals of kingship at Mari in Old Babylon and in the Old Testament concluded that none of the major themes of Mesopotamian kingship ritual, including the roles that water plays in those rites, should be unfamiliar to students of the Bible. Indeed, as John Walton correctly observes, quote, the ideology of the temple is not noticeably different in Israel than it is in the ancient Near East. The difference is in the God, not in the way the temple functions in relation to the God. End of quote. David Calabro has explored the possibility that texts text with an outline similar to that of the Book of Moses may have been used in Solomon's temple to instruct and guide initiates through specific areas where instruction was given and rituals were performed. Of relevance to the present discussion is the connection that he suggests between the text of Moses 6 and the molten sea that stood in front of the temple. After discussing several clues supporting his thesis from the Book of Moses, Calabro concludes, While there is no evidence that the temple laver was used as a baptismal font, it was definitely large enough to suggest such a use. And Joseph Smith's specifications for a baptismal font modeled after the Solomonic labor for the Nauvoo Temple show that he under- showed that he understood it in this connection. End of quote. It is evident that two distinct sorts of water ordinances, namely baptism by immersion and washing as part of priestly or kingly initiation, became confused in the first centuries after Christ making it difficult to know which which one is meant when Christian scripture or tradition mentions the use of water in religious ritual. Instead, as religious practices evolved, rituals resembling, resembling washing, anointing, and clothing were sometimes performed as part of baptism. For example, in some Christian baptismal traditions, the idea of, quote, reversing the blows of death was represented by a special anointing with the oil of mercy Prior to or sometimes after baptism, as the candidate was signed on the brow, the nostrils, the bread, the the breast, the ears, and so forth. It was commonly accepted by some Christians that the precedent for such anointings went back to the beginning of time. For instance, in the pseudepigraphal Life of Adam and Eve, we can read an incident where Adam, as he laid on his deathbed, requested Eve and Seth to fetch him oil from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden so that he could be restored to life. Some traditions describe how the baptismal candidate was stripped to the garments inherited from Adam and vested with the token of those garments that he or she shall enjoy at the resurrection. In other traditions the baptismal candidate stood barefoot on animal skins while they prayed, symbolizing the taking off of the garments of skin they had inherited from Adam as well as figuratively enacting the putting off of the serpent, representative of death and sin, and putting it under one's heel. Thus the serpent, his head crushed by the heel of the penitent, relying on the mercies of Christ's atonement, was by a single act, renounced, defeated, and banished. 4. The Context a circumcision in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus about being born again. A passage from Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis, discussed in more detail below, highlights the importance of the relationship between baptism, as revealed in the beginning to Adam and Eve, and the later instruction of the Old Testament ordinance of circumcision through God's command to Abraham. Samuel Zinner describes the relationship between baptism and circumcision as part of the generally underappreciated context for the dialogue of Jesus and Nicodemus about the importance of being born again. It is perhaps not usually recognized that implicit in John 3's discussion on the new birth and baptism is the topic of circumcision. Early Christian theology understood baptism as a spiritual circumcision for Gentile adherents of the Jesus sect. Rabbinic sources also understood cross immersion as a new and spiritual birth. In John 3, 4, Jesus' teachings on rebirth in verse 3 naturally bring circumcision to Nicodemus' mind, so that in effect he asks, How can a male adult return to the state of infancy and be circumcised again? The rhetorical confusion in the discussion arises because Jesus is teaching that a circumcised Jewish male adult must be reborn spiritually, Nicodemus' thought is that Jewish males are already spiritually reborn from the time of their infant circumcision. Only Gentile proselytes stand in need of spiritual rebirth. In fact, Jesus is referring to baptism of repentance for Jews and Jesus' imperative, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' points in John 3 is that Jews need spiritual circumcision in addition to the physical rite, a traditional enough prophetic Tanakhic trope. In 1QS 5, we see uh, in the documents of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see that spiritual circumcision is demanded in the community. Quote, circumcise in the community the foreskin of his tenancy and of his stiff neck, end of quote. This follows 1QS 4's teaching on immersion which matches the pattern established already by Ezekiel, who speaks of cleansing water followed by the insertion of a new spirit and heart. Such Qumran passages, like John the Baptist and Jesus' baptismal teachings, do not suggest that baptism replaces circumcision, but that it complements and perfects it. 5. Circumcision, Covenant, and Baptism in Antiquity and in the Joseph Smith Translation of the Bible Consistent with the linkages between circumcision and bapti- covenant and baptism suggested by Zinner are many allusions to these subjects both in antiquity and in Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon and the Bible. For example, consider Isaiah 48.1 as quoted in 1 Nephi 21. This gloss, I'd clarify in comment by Joseph Smith, first appeared in the 1840 edition of the Book of Mormon. Quote, Hearken and hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, or out of the waters of baptism, who swear by the name of the Lord God and make mention of the God of Israel, yet they swear not in truth, nor in righteousness. Of quote. The term waters within the phrase, come forth out of the waters of Judah, might be more plainly rendered as the belly or loins of Judah a poetical reference to the literal seed of the body out of which the corporeal descendants of Judah are propagated. For this reason, one might see in this phrase an allusion to the covenant of circumcision, a covenant that was not only made necessary for Abraham and his biological posterity, but also, significantly, something to which all those who had been adopted into his household were required to submit. Joseph Smith's gloss, the disjunctive phrase, quote, or out of the waters of baptism, end of quote, expands Isaiah's reference to include Gentiles who could become part of covenant Israel by adoption through proselyte baptism, consistent with 3 Nephi 32. Quote, Turn all ye Gentiles from your wicked ways, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost, that ye may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. End of quote. An even more pointed reference connecting the themes of circumcision and baptism can be found in the mention of the blood of Abel within Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Genesis. The neglect of this passage by scholars argues for a detailed treatment here. The story of Abel has always been linked with the idea of proper sacrifice. Indeed, his name seems to be a deliberate pun on the richness of the sacrifice that he will make in contrast to the stingy offering of Cain. Quote, and Abel, Hebel, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, umel heleb Ben, in other words, from the fatlings, the richest part of the herd. Not only does the Hebrew word eleb denote fat, but also the word ume Ben contains within itself the name of Abel, reversed, in other words, ume Ben, thus strengthening the pun. Remember that in the book of Hebrews, the shedding of, Abraham, of Abel's blood was seen as a type of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. With respect to his place among the biblical canon of martyrs, Hamilton writes, quote, Abel is coupled with Zechariah as the first and the last victims of murder mentioned in the Old Testament. Understandably, Abel is characterized as innocent, End of quote. The Joseph Smith Translation of the Bible connects the death of the righteous Abel to an anomalous ordinance for washing of little, uh, for little children, consisting of the sprinkling of blood, coupled with washing, that is denounced in JST Genesis 17, verses 3 through 7. And it came to pass that Abram fell on his face and called upon the name of the Lord. And God talked to him, saying, My people have gone astray from my precepts and have not kept mine ordinances which I gave unto their fathers, and they have not observed mine anointing, and the burial or baptism which wherewith I commanded them. They have turned from the commandment, and taken unto themselves the washing of children, and the blood of sprinkling, and have said that the blood of the righteous Abel was shed for sins, and have not known wherein they are accountable before me. To counteract this practice, we are told that the Lord established the covenant of circumcision at the age of eight days, that thou mayest know forever that thy children are not, are not accountable before me till they are eight years old. DNC 68, 25 through 28, received later in the same year that JST Genesis 17 was translated, also emphasizes that children are not accountable until eight years old. In a remarkable resonance with the Joseph Smith translation, the central figure of Abel is associated with the rituals of water immersion among the Mandeans. Indeed, Abel, often called Ebel Ziwa, Abel's splendor, which is often identified with the role who is also often identified with the roles of redeemer and savior, was said to have performed the first baptism, that of Adam, who prefigures every later Mandean candidate for these repeated rituals. Following the ceremonies of immersion, the Mandians still continue the ritual practices that include anointing and the pronouncing of the names of the gods upon the individual. The kushta, a ceremonial handclasp, is given three times in the ritual, each one of which, according to Elizabeth Drower, seems to mark the completion of a stage in a ceremony. At the moment of glorious resurrection, Mandian scripture records that a final kushta will also take place, albeit in the form of an embrace, called the, quote, key of the Kushta of both arms end of quote. The concept of an atoning embrace that can be compared with can be compared with similar imagery in Jacob's wrestle with the angel, and in his subsequent encounter with Esau, in the reconciliation of the Father with his prodigal son in Jesus' parable, and especially in the eschatological embraces of Enoch Zion and Latter day Zion, described in Moses seven sixty three, quote, then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. Equally relevant to JST Genesis 173 7 is Hebrews 12:24, which speaks of the saints coming, quote, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, end of quote to Craig Kuster, this suggests that the idea that the, suggests the idea that quote Abel's blood brought a limited atonement while Jesus' blood brought a complete atonement end of quote with reference to Hebrews 11:4 Joseph Smith said that Abel quote holding still the keys of his dispensation was sent down from heaven unto Paul to minister consoling words and to commit unto him a knowledge of the mysteries of godliness end of quote the practice of swearing by the holy blood of Abel is portrayed in early Christian and Islamic accounts of the efforts of the antediluvian patriarchs to dissuade their posterity from leaving the holy mountain to associate with the children of Cain. Serge Ruzer interprets this as evidence for the existence of a group that looked to Abel rather than to Christ for salvation. He concludes that, quote, the emphasis here is on the salvific quality of Abel's blood. Swearing by Abel's blood is presented in our text as sufficient for the salvation of the sons of Seth. Those who dwell, thanks to swearing by Abel's blood, on the holy mountain do not need any further salvation. End of quote. Additional evidence suggesting a belief in the salvific power for Abel's blood comes from a First Enoch description of Abel as a red calf. Patrick Tiller sees this as an allusion to the red heifer of Numbers 19, 1-10. through the great Jewish scholar Maimonides saw the ritual of the red heifer not merely as a law of purity, but rather as a matter of transcendent, even salvific weight and meaning. The red heifer, pointedly, was a young animal used in purification rites, comprising a washing and a sprinkling of blood, for those who had come into contact with one found slain and lying in the field, as was able. A widely varying set of Islamic accounts attempt to explain the origin of a related Quranic story. What these accounts have in common is the idea that the murderer denied his crime but was identified by the voice of the dead man who was touched by the sacrificial animal. Could this be an echo of the righteous Abel of whom scripture says says his blood cries unto out of God, to God from the ground wherein he being yet dead spe- yet speaketh. In summary, there is ample evidence from a variety of sources dating from at least the second t- temple period To support the plausibility of the account in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, wherein anomalous rituals for little children purporting to cleanse them by washing and the sprinkling of blood are coupled with the erroneous notion that the blood of the righteous Abel was shed for sins. As a figure associated anciently with sacrifice, baptism, and innocent martyrdom, Abel arguably could have attracted religious notions of this character. Additionally, the rationale for the institution of circumcision in the Joseph Smith Translation is also consistent with Samuel Zinner's conclusion about the symbolic connection between circumcision and baptism in its New Testament context, namely, that baptism was not meant to replace circumcision, but rather that it complements and perfects it. 6. Digression. Baptism and ritual washings as illustrations of the nature of all ordinances. Before concluding our discussion of the symbolism of water and spiritual rebirth, we digress to show how baptism and ritual washings provide a paradigmatic illustration of the nature of all priesthood ordinances. We conclude, from our brief discussion of baptism and ritual washings, that they, when administered as authentic priesthood ordinances, are symbolic, salvific, interrelated and additive, retrospective and interpretive, and anticipatory. Symbolic. Hugh Nibley defines the endowment as a model, a presentation in figurative terms. The same can be said for baptism, which Paul describes as a symbol of death and resurrection. Like the parables of Jesus, the ordinances are meant to provide both an understanding of the spiritual universe in which we live and a model for personal conduct within that context. That is why the Lord condemns in such strong terms those who take their fundamental bearings from other less perfect instruments. Such individuals are described as those who have strayed from his ordinances, who seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but rather walk in their own way after the image of their own God, whose image is in the likeness of the telestial rather than the celestial world. When our understanding of the universe and our place within it is based upon our own warped conceptions, Instead of the blueprint of the celestial world provided in the ordinances, we will experience the frustration of mistaken ambitions and stunted growth in the personal and social characteristics that matter most in eternity. On the other hand, repeated participation in sacred ordinances over the course of a lifetime allow us to deepen our understandings of who we are and who God is and what our relationship to him and to his children is. Salvific President Joseph F. Smith taught, I frequently hear people say, all that is required of a man in this world is to be honest and square, and that such a man will attain to exaltation and glory. But those who say this do not remember the saying of the Lord that except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God." While recognizing the superior form of pedagogy embodied in the symbolism of the ordinances, Elder David A. Bednar taught that we err if we think that their value is limited to inspired instruction. He said, citing Doctrine and Covenants 84:19 19-21, The ordinances of salvation and exaltation administered in the Lord's restored Church are far more than rituals or symbolic performances. Rather, they constitute authorized channels through which the blessings and powers of heaven can flow into our individual lives. In other words, the realization of the promised endowment of knowledge and power promised in the ordinances requires that one be both informed and transformed. Indeed, the blessings of being born again by the Spirit of God through ordinances, in conjunction with the strengthening power of the atonement of Christ, is obtained only as individuals live for it, in a continual effort of obedience and service that strengthens the ties of covenants with which they are freely and lovingly bound to their Heavenly Father. Only by both understanding and conforming to the divine pattern given in the ordinances may individuals gradually experience an increasing measure of the joy of becoming all that God now is. Interrelated and Additive Elder David A. Bednar explained, The ordinances of baptism by immersion, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the sacrament are not isolated and discrete events. Rather, they are elements in an interrelated and additive pattern of redemptive progress. Each successive ordinance elevates and enlarges our spiritual purpose, desire, and performance. The Father's plan, the Savior's atonement, and the ordinances of the gospel provide the grace we need to press forward and progress line upon line and precept upon precept toward our, our eternal destiny. End of quote. That the ordinances must be closely interrelated should be obvious. After all, each one is placed on the same doctrine of Christ. Illustrating this point, Elder Bruce R. McConkie noted that three different ordinances, baptism, the sacrament, and animal sacrifice, were instituted at different times, are enacted using different symbolism, and are employed in different settings. However, all are performed in association with one and the same covenant. In other words, although each of these three ordinances fulfills a unique purpose, and varies somewhat in what it signifies, all are performed in similitude to the atoning sacrifice by which salvation comes. As an aside, we note in this connection that any adaptation of an ordinance to different times, cultures, and practical circumstances must be made by proper authority in order to minimize the possibility of changes that may alter it in crucial ways. It is likewise essential that the ordinances be additive. For example, just as baptism must be preceded by faith in Jesus Christ and sincere repentance, so the ongoing process of sanctification, made available to those who are confirmed, receive, and retain the gift of the Holy Ghost, can come only to those who have been prepared previously through baptism. Likewise, the initial budding of the power of godliness that is increasingly manifest in the lives of faithful members of the Church as they renew their prior covenants through the sacrament prepares them for the additional ordinances and covenants they will later receive in the temple. Further illustrating the additive nature of all the ordinances, we note that faith, hope, and charity served anciently both as symbols of the three degrees of glory represented in the temple, and also as stages in the disciples' earthly experience marked by progression in the ordinances and the keeping of covenants. This same triad was represented both anciently and in the teachings, translations, and revelations of Joseph Smith as a ladder of heavenly ascent that must be mounted rung by rung. Elder Bednar's characterization of the additive pattern of redemptive progress suggests that those who are striving to become saints are passionate, not passive, about their discipleship. Like Abraham, they are driven by divine discontent not being satisfied with the sort of minimal, negative obedience which requires only that they avoid the appearance of sin, but rather seeking to be anxiously engaged and further in the Father's work with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. By this means they eventually become capable of enduring all things, being filled with perfect faith, hope, and charity, their will being swallowed up in the will of the Father to the point that, after a lifetime of faithfulness to every covenant they have received, And through the strengthening power of the atonement, they begin to approach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Retrospective An appreciation of the retrospective regard of the ordinances clears up any confusion about the relationship between baptism and other water ordinances. Since the time of Adam, baptism has been the first introductory saving ordinance of the gospel given in mortal life and any similarities between baptism and later ordinances of washing are meant to highlight and build upon that resemblance retrospectively. Further illustrating the retrospective regard of later washing ordinances, we would suggest that their significant harks back even beyond baptism, echoing earlier events that occurred in the premortal life. For example, it appears that the ordinances received by Aaron when he was washed, anointed, and clothed in holy garments so that he might minister unto the Lord in the priest's office, recapitulated his foreordination to this priesthood calling when he was washed and set apart in the premortal world. Consistent with the teachings of Joseph Smith, Alma 13 teaches that, quote, High priests were ordained after the order of God's Son, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world with that holy calling, according to a preparatory redemption for such, end of quote. Similarly, President Spencer W. Kimball taught that in premortal life faithful women were also given assignments to be carried out later on earth. Speaking of Christ as the premortal prototype for all those who were poor ordained to priestly offices and subsequently ordained in mortal life, the Gospel of Philip suggests that the general meaning, symbolism, and sequence of the ordinances has always been the same. Quote, he who was begotten before everything was begotten anew, in other words, by the water. He who was once anointed was anointed anew, in other words, by the Spirit. He who was redeemed in turn redeemed others, in other words, by the blood. Because the round of eternity is embedded in the ordinances, we would expect not only them not only to be retrospective, but also anticipatory in nature, For example, in Moses 5, Adam learns that the ordinance of animal sacrifice was instituted in explicit anticipation of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, just as, as, of course, the ordinance of the sacrament looks back retrospectively on that same expiatory sacrifice. With regard to the sacrifice of Isaac, Hugh Nibley asked, Is it surprising that the sacrifice of Isaac looked both forward and back, as Isaac thought of himself as the type of offerings to come, while Abraham thought of himself as atoning for the guilt of Adam, or that as Isaac was being bound on the altar, the spirit of Adam, the first man, was being bound with him. It was natural for Christians to view the sacrifice of Isaac as a type for the crucifixion. Yet it is the Jewish sources that comment most impressively on the sacrifice of the Son. When at the creation of the world angels asked, What is man that you should remember him? God replied, You shall see a father slay his son, and the son consenting to be slain, to sanctify my name. End of quote from Nibley. As an aside, we note that Abraham is unique in Scripture in that he came to understand Christ's atonement from both the perspective of a father and also from that of a son. As another example of the anticipatory nature of the ordinances, recall the witness of JST Genesis 17.11 that the divine introduction of circumcision in the time of Abraham, somewhat like the ordinance of naming and blessing of little children in our day, was important not only in its own right, but also because it pointed forward to the ordinance of baptism. Remember that a primary reason for the institution of the practice of circumcision was, quote, that thou mayest know forever that children are not accountable before me till they are eight years old, end of quote. The bloodshed and circumcision, whose mark remained in the child as a permanent sign in the flesh, could be understood as a symbol of a rested sacrifice that inspites, that invites re- retrospective reflection on the universal salvation of little children through the blood of Christ's atonement at the same time, the symbolisms of circumcision also implicitly facilitated a correct anticipatory understanding of the necessity of justification accomplished through the spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins that was meant to accompany the baptism of children when they reached the age of accountability. Note also that the symbolism of death and resurrection in the ordinance of baptism anticipates the instruction and covenants of the temple endowment that further detail the responsibilities and blessings of those who pass through the veil to rise in the first resurrection. Similarly in the initiatory ordinances of washing, anointing, and clothing they provide an anticipatory capsule summary of all the ordinances. More specifically, one might conclude that the structure of the initiatory ordinance of the temple reflects the threefold symbolism of water, spirit, and blood found in Moses 6, thus outlining the path of exaltation that is further elaborated in the endowment. In addition, the anticipatory nature of the initiatory ordinance is captured in what Truman G. Madsen's description of it as, quote, a patriarchal blessing to every organ and attribute and power of our being, a blessing that is to be fulfilled in this world and the next, End of quote. going further and consistent with the idea that the reality that the temple is a model or analogue rather than an actual picture of reality, Elder John A. Widso taught that the essential earthly ordinances anticipate or perhaps more precisely prefigure heavenly ordinances. Which eternal truths and blessings will be taught and bestowed in a more perfect and finished form. Quote Great eternal truths make up the gospel plan. All regulations for man's earthly guidance have their eternal spiritual counterparts. The earthly ordinances of the gospel are themselves only reflections of heavenly ordinances. For instance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and temple work are merely earthly symbols of realities that prevail throughout the universe, but they are symbols of truth that so must be recognized if the great plan is to be fulfilled. The acceptance of these earthly symbols is part and parcel of correct earth life, but being earthly symbols, they are distinctly of the earth and cannot be accepted anywhere elsewhere than on earth. In order that absolute fairness may prevail and eternal justice may be satisfied, all men, to attain the fullness of their joy, must accept these earthly ordinances. There is no water baptism in the next estate, nor any conferring of the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of earthly hands. The equivalents of these ordinances prevail, no doubt, in every estate, but only as they are given on this earth can they be made to aid in their onward progress those who have dwelt on earth. End of quote from Elder John A. Whitsall. The distinction between earthly and heaven, heavenly ordinances is perfectly expressed in the OT1 manuscript version of Moses 6.59. It is true that the first part of the verse might seem to imply that the culminating earthly ordinances, whose cleansing is provided by the blood of mine only begotten, provide a complete initiation into the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in this life. However, the verse closes by making a distinction between the words of eternal life, meaning both the revelations of the Holy Spirit with regard to temple ordinances, and ultimately the sure promise of exaltation that can only be received in an anticipatory way in this world, and eternal life itself, which can only be granted in the world to come. By way of summary, we might say that the ordinances associated with water, spirit, and blood are saturated with symbolism. Indeed, Elder John A. Witt so specifically described the endowment as being Quote, "...so packed full of revelations that no human words can explain or make them clear." More specifically, we might say that the ordinances are overloaded with a superabundant profusion of meanings, overdetermined in the tangible forms that they take, and deliberately overlaid in successive refinement so as to facilitate incremental growth of understanding and practical application in the lives of those who receive them. Like the crews of oil blessed by Elijah, and the inexhaustible picture of Bacchus and Philemon. Study of and participation in the ordinances will continually pour out new depths of meaning to those who are spiritually prepared to receive them. As to the joint purport of the ordinances uh, being gradually revealed to faithful disciples, they begin to see how their several meanings function as keys to the dense conceptual and practical nexus at the heart of the gospel, reverberating in harmony throughout the parallel, yet interwoven conceptual realms of doctrines, ordinances, and covenants, and ultimately, in their transformative power, unlocking the power of godliness that constitutes the supreme significance and purpose of creation. Both in their additive auto-resemblance, and in their Janus-like anticipatory and retrospective regard, the fractal nature of the ordinances is made apparent, with the beauty of their self-similar patterns becoming even more impressive under bright light and increasingly closer examination. There is glory in the details. By the Spirit ye are justified. Next we turn our attention to the second phrase in Moses 6.60, By the Spirit ye are justified. As in the previous discussion of the water ordinances of baptism and washings, The symbolic, salvific, interrelated, additive, retrospective, and anticipatory nature of the ordinances of spiritual rebirth associated with the spirit will become apparent. Before delving deeper into the subject, we will discuss four fundamental questions about justification and sanctification. 1. What does it mean to be justified? Simply put, individuals become just or in other words, innocent before God and ready for a covenant relationship with him, when they demonstrate sufficient repentance to qualify for an initial cleansing from sin by the Spirit, thus having had the demands of justice satisfied on their behalf through the Savior's atoning blood. 2. But don't the scriptures refer specifically to baptism for the remission of sins? Because baptism and remission of sins occur together so often in telescope scripture references, the role of the spirit in the process of justification is easily forgotten. However, a survey of scripture will reveal that the remission of sins is mentioned most frequently in verses that omit any mention of baptism. In these and other references, remission of sins is typically coupled with the preparatory principles of faith or repentance, rather than with the ordinance of baptism itself. Although baptism by proper authority is a commandment that must be strictly observed to meet the divine requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God, it is but the necessary outward sign of one's willingness to take upon oneself the name of Jesus Christ and keep his commandments. A significant phrase in D&C 20.37 explains with precision that it is not the performance of the baptismal ordinance that cleanses, but rather the individuals having, quote, "...truly manifested by their works." that they have received the Spirit of Christ unto a remission of their sins, end of quote. A requirement that according to this verse is clearly intended to precede water baptism. In other words, strictly speaking, it is not baptism but rather the fact of having quote, received the Spirit of Christ as the result of faith and repentance that is responsible for the mighty change of state wherein individuals are wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost for by the Spirit ye are justified. How do the ongoing processes of justification and sanctification complement and sustain one another? To adapt imagery from C.S. Lewis, it might be said that the interwoven processes of justification and sanctification are as complementary and mutually necessary as the two blades of a pair of scissors. Just as the Spirit of Christ should be received prior to baptism so that individuals may receive an initial justificatory justificatory remission of sins, so the Holy Ghost should be received and cherished after baptism and confirmation so that individuals may benefit from the availability of its constant, ongoing, sanctifying influence. Without justification, the sanctifying companionship and power of the Holy Ghost are not operative for just as no unclean thing can dwell in God's presence, so the Holy Ghost cannot dwell in unclean individuals. And without sanctification, those who have been made clean through the justifying Spirit of Christ never could gain access to the strengthening power that will enable them to keep the commandments of God and grow in holiness. The companionship and power of the Holy Ghost that are available for the ongoing work of sanctification are only available so long as individuals live worthy to maintain its presence. When those on the path of sanctification fail to keep the commandments, they must repent and be made clean again before they can continue their onward growth along the path of sanctification. In this fashion, the complementary processes of justification, remission of sins, and sanctification, the gradual changing one's nature that allows individuals to become new creatures in Christ, may operate, if we so choose, throughout our lives, preparing us eventually to be spiritually, spiritually reborn in the ultimate sense. Aided by the repeated preparation for and participation in the ordinance of the sacrament, we can, quote, always retain a justificatory remission of our sins, and, quote, we can always have the Spirit of the Lord to be with us for the ongoing work of sanctification. This figure superposes the sequence of justification, sanctification, and exaltation upon the layout of ordinance rooms on the second floor of the Salt Lake Temple. It is meant to illustrate how justification and sanctification can be seen from a different but equally valid perspective as sequential steps instead of as interwoven parts of a parallel process. Justification and sanctification, the two initial steps of this sequence, are described in imagery from King Benjamin's speech he exhorts his people first to put off the natural man, without which one cannot be clothed upon with robes of righteousness, and second, for each to become a saint, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him. He emphasizes that this fundamental transformation, by which a natural man may become a saint if he so chooses, is made possible through the atonement of Christ the Lord. From this perspective, we might consider the initial remission of sins through the Spirit, the ordinance of baptism, distinct from washing, yet related to it through the use of water, and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost after confirmation as accomplishing the first step of justification, by which we put off the natural man. Through the continued faith in Jesus Christ and faithfulness in keeping the commandments, individuals living in a telestial world may progress to a point where they can be quickened by a portion of the terrestrial glory. In the process of sanctification, associated with progress of a terrestrial nature, individuals may become saints in very deed. Having been quickened by a portion of the terrestrial glory, they continue to receive of the same unto a fullness through additional ordinances and the ongoing sanctifying anointing, as it were, of the Spirit of the Lord. Finally, having received a fullness of the terrestrial glory, having experienced a perfect brightness of hope, as described by Nephi, a more excellent hope, as described by Mormon, or the full assurance of hope, as described by Paul, demonstrating their capacity for the supreme self-sacrifices required by the law of consecration, and being filled with charity, the pure love of Christ, these individuals can be sealed up to eternal life by revelation and the spirit of prophecy through the power of the holy priesthood. In this manner, they are sanctified by the blood, quickened by a portion of the celestial glory, and made ready to behold the face of God. In the process of exaltation, individuals who have been previously cleansed by the blood, even the blood of the only begotten, that they might be sanctified from all sin, may they then go on to additional blessings in the celestial world, being crowned with honor, glory, immortality, and eternal lives. The Lord declared that these individuals shall be, quote, clothed upon, even as I am, to become one with me, that we may be one. 4. Do justification and sanctification come by the Spirit or through the Savior? Justification and sanctification are accomplished through the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, and at the same time made possible through the Atonement of Christ. Therefore, it is no contradiction when Scripture testifies both that we are sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, and also that it is by the blood we are sanctified. D and C through thirty one states that both justification and sanctification come through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, confirmation, anointing, and, sancti- and, and the sanctifying influence of the Holy Ghost. Specific forms have been divinely prescribed for the ordinance of confirmation and for subsequent ordinances of anointing. While the form of baptism recalls the symbolism of death and resurrection, the laying of hands on the head that is used in confirmation suggests a retrospective regard toward the scriptural account of the creation of Adam, wherein God, quote, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, end of quote. In this respect, recall also the account of John 20:22, 20, when Jesus, quote, breathed on his disciples, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, end of quote. As Joseph Smith highlighted the importance of the manner in which baptism is performed, describing it as a sign, so did he refer to the symbolic evocation of the breath of life in the laying on of hands by which the Holy Ghost is given, ordinations are performed, and the sick are healed, as a sign. He said pointedly that if ordinances were not performed in the way God had appointed, they would fail. In this context, we might recall what Jesus said when Peter wanted him to wash his head and hands in addition to his feet. Quote, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. End of quote. The Lord's reply to Peter suggests why in similar fashion the laying of hands on the head with some ordinances equates to a blessing for the entire body. With regard to the ordinances of anointing, that are associated with the sanctifying influence of the Holy Ghost, biblical and Egyptian sources associate the receiving of divine breath not merely with an infusion of life, but also with royal status. For example, Isaiah attributes the presence of the Spirit of the Lord to a prior messianic anointing, the anointing oil like divine breath being a symbol of new life. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. Anointing followed by an outpouring of the Spirit is documented in, as part of the rites of kin kingship in ancient Israel, as when Samuel anointed David, quote, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Note that in Israelite practice, as witnessed in the examples of David and Solomon, the moment when the individual was made king was not necessarily have been the time of his first anointing. The culminating anointing of the king corresponding to his definite investiture was sometimes preceded by a prior princely anointing. Le Grand Rich Baker and Stephen Ricks described several instances in the Old Testament where a prince was first anointed to become king, and later, after he had proven himself, was anointed again, this time as actual king. Modern Latter-day Saints can compare this idea to the conditional promises they receive in association with ordinances and blessings which are realized only through their condition, continued faithfulness. Further emphasizing the anticipatory nature of the ordinance, Brigham Young explained that, quote, a person may be anointed king and priest long before he receives his kingdom. In modern times, one can still see vestiges of the symbolism of anointing, royal status, and the Holy Spirit brought together. For example, prior to the British ceremonies of coronation, In the holiest rite of that service, the monarch is, quote, divested of robes, clothed in simple white linen, and screened from the general view to be imbued with grace through the archbishop's anointing with holy oil on hand, breast, and forehead, end of quote. Just as the separate yet interrelated rites of baptism and subsequent washings with water became blurred in early Christianity, so also the distinctive ordinances of confirmation and anointing have become confused in some religious traditions. For example, the Armenian liturgy includes two anointings, one with unperfumed oil before baptism and the other after it with myron or perfumed oil. From modern revelation, it is clear that baptism is the first ordinance of the Gospel, administered by the authority of the Aaronic Priesthood, with later ordinances of washing looking back retrospectively upon it. So confirmation for the gift of the Holy Ghost is the first ordinance administered by the Melchizedek Priesthood. In an interrelated and additive fashion, temple initiatory ordinances of washing and anointing echo and build upon the ordinances of baptism and confirmation. Substantiating the idea that initiatory anointing ordinances were not meant to be restricted only to a small subset of disciples, Tertullian described how in his day in the early Christian church all newly baptized Christians were anointed. He stated that this was a practice derived from the old discipline wherein on entering the priesthood men were wont to be anointed with oil from a horn ever since Aaron was anointed by Moses, wherein Aaron is called Christ from the chrism which is the unction, or oil of anointing, end of quote. The initiatory ordinances are not only retrospective, but also look forward to an, in anticipation of, to subsequent confirmatory anointings and sealing blessings, wherein disciples imitate the Christ. In, indeed, Pseudo-Clement's recognitions defines the Greek title Christ, equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah, meaning anointed one, with reference to an anointing of oil administered by God himself. Quote, Although indeed he was the Son of God and the beginning of all things he became man, him first God anointed with oil, which was taken from the wood of the tree of life, from that anointing, therefore he is called Christ c s Lewis succinctly expressed this principle behind the practice of anointing all Christians. Quote, Every Christian is to become a little Christ; the whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. By the blood ye are sanctified. Of course, becoming a little Christ is not a process that ends with an anticipatory anointing. There is a double meaning in the phrase, By the blood ye are sanctified, as was expressed in the previously cited words about Christ from the Gospel of Philip He who was redeemed in turn redeemed others. Although redemption itself comes only in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son, It might also be said, regarding those who have been ordained after the order of the Son, he who is redeemed with a preparatory redemption, in turn must assist, with all his heart, mind, and strength, to bring about the redemption of others. In brief, those who would follow Christ to the end must continue to move beyond the keeping of the initiatory law of obedience and sacrifice, toward the complete dedication required by the law of consecration. Before saying more on this point, we will examine the role of blood in the context of the ordinances, for by the blood ye are sanctified. Blood as a Symbol of Sanctification The first explicit mention of blood in the Bible is Genesis four ten and 11, where Abel's blood cried to God from the ground as a plea of redress for Cain's murder, and the earth in turn, from thenceforth, refused to yield its strength to the perpetrator of the crime. The deliberate con- consumption of blood has been practiced in many cultures because popular thought had it that one could renew or reinforce one's vitality through its absorption, through its absorption of blood. Intriguingly, an alternate reading of Moses 6.29, given in the OT1 manuscript, describes a wicked Cain-like people who, in the, who quote, by their oaths, have eaten unto themselves death. End of quote. If this variant is not a scribal error, it may indicate a corrupt practice where participation by those who were richly unclean was condemned, or perhaps even the eating of blood itself. Later God said to Noah, The blood of all flesh which I have given you for meat shall be shed upon the ground which taketh the life thereof, and the blood ye shall not eat. Because blood was a symbol of life, it was used in Israel. Inter-Israelite temples for the altar of sacrifice to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul, thus symbolizing justification. Consistent with temple symbolism, Exodus 24.8 recounts how blood was sprinkled on Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai to ratify the divine covenant, thus making it binding. In contrast to this lesser sprinkling on all the people, an additional sprinkling of blood on the group that accompanied Moses on his ascent of the mountain symbolized sanctification. As a result of this second sprinkling, they were enabled immediately thereafter to see Jehovah standing on what seemed to be the capperet, or mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest applied the atoning blood to the Ark of the Covenant. Following a similar description of the appearance of the Lord in the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were told, quote, Your sins are forgiven you. In other words, they were justified. You are clean before me. In other words, they were sanctified. Related symbolism is apparent in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. When Isaiah was taken up to the presence of God to receive his prophetic commission, one of the seraphim flew to him, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Presumably the coal, taken off the altar of incense that purged, literally atoned for, Isaiah's sin, previously had been sprinkled with sacrificial blood. Thus his lips had been sanctified by blood shed in similitude of Jesus Christ, perhaps the very seraphim mentioned in the verse, preparing him to speak with God. Incidentally, the English word blood has an interesting derivation that leads back from Old English to a Proto-Germanic term. The Old Norse noun, blot, which derives from the same Proto-Germanic root, was the term for both sacrifice and worship. The Old roots are also connected with the modern English terms, bliss and bless, the latter by means of pre-Christian rites, whereas blood was sprinkled on pagan altars or other objects to make them holy being sealed up to eternal life. Elder David A. Bednar has explained, purifying and sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise constitute the culminating steps in the process of being born again, end of quote. Those who are sanctified have their garments washed white through the blood of the lamb. As an aside, note that the Hebrew word for washing clothes, kabash, is very similar in sound to a word for lamb, kebesh, suggesting a possible wordplay. Although it is not unusual for lesser blessings, ordinances, and ordinations to be sealed upon the heads of individuals, the supreme manifestation of the sealing power occurs when one's calling and election is made sure, or in other words, when when one is, quote, sealed up unto eternal life by revelation and the spirit of prophecy, end of quote. To be sealed in this ultimate sense requires taking upon oneself both the divine name and also the divine form, just as Jesus Christ was, quote, the express image of the Father. In former times, seals had provided a unique stamp of identity on important documents, the image of the author being transferred, as it were, to the document itself. Similarly, Luke T. Johnson sees the scriptural concept of sealing as both an empowering and an imprinting process, recalling Alma's words about receiving God's image in our countenances. Using similar imagery, Paul described his beloved Corinthian saints as the epistle of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart, of quote. These saints, quote, with open face beholding as in glass the glory of the Lord, quote, were to be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, end of quote the substitute sacrifice of the suffering servant. Properly, of course, the sinner's own blood must be used on the altar of sacrifice, explained Hugh Nibley, unless a goel, a representative substitute advocate or redeemer, could be found to take one's place. The willingness of the candidate to sacrifice his own life, the Adeka akida, is symbolized by the blood on the right thumb and right earlobe, where the, where the blood would be if the throat had been cut." End of quote. In the case of Abraham's near sacri- Isaac's near-sacrifice by Abraham, a sacrificial ram was supplied in his stead at the last moment. More significant, however, is the fact that, quote, Isaac himself was a substitute. In Jewish tradition, writes Rosenberg, Isaac is the prototype of the suffering servant, bound upon the altar as a sacrifice. Rosenberg has shown that the title of suffering servant was used in the ancient East to designate the su- substitute king, a noble victim. According to, accordingly, the new Isaac mentioned in Maccabees must be a substitute king who dies that the people may live. The starting point in Rosenberg's investigation is Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, which, quote, seems to constitute a portion of a ritual drama centering around a similar humiliation, culminating in death, of a substitute for the figure of the king of the Jews, end of quote. The rite of sacrifice of the substitute king is found all over the ancient world." End of quote from Hugh Nibley. We have already observed that the servant song of Isaiah 52 applies not only to Jesus Christ, but also to others who may eventually qualify to become sons of man or sons of God with a small s. While the initial blessing of justification comes exclusively by means of a substitutionary offering on the altar sacrifice in the temple courtyard, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save, the culminating step of the process of sanctification is a joint effort, symbolized by a second sacrifice made on the altar of incense that stands before the veil. While that second sacrifice is no less dependent on the merits, mercy, and grace of Christ and the ongoing endowment of his strengthening power, it requires, in addition, that individuals grow in their capacity to meet the stringent measure of self-sacrifice enjoined by the law of consecration. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. In light of these considerations, it is clear that although the saints cannot be made clean without God's own sanctifying power, they must, in addition, fulfill his requirement to sanctify themselves. This they do by, quote, purifying their hearts and cleansing their hands and their feet in order that I, the Lord, may make them clean from the blood and sins of this wicked generation, that I may fulfill this great and last promise to unveil my face unto them, end of quote. Explaining the need for disciples to be made, quote, clean every whit, end of quote, that they may be ready to stand in the presence of God, John W. Welch described the change in law that was announced by Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, quote, the old law of sacrifice was explicitly replaced by that of a broken heart and contrite spirit. And whereas previously the sacrificial animal was to be pure and without blemish, aplos in Greek, now the disciples themselves are to become single, aplos, to the glory of God. End of quote. Within modern temple ordinances, as within the sacrament, animal sacrifice is replaced by the offering of oneself. Such offerings are memorials of the sacrifice by the sons of Levi, to use the phrase from D&C 124. In other words, symbolic rather than literal reenactments of ancient temple practices that required the shedding of blood, illuminating the differences between the ordinances of the the preparatory Aaronic priesthood and those of the holy Melchizedek priesthood after the order of the Son of God. Elder Neal A. Maxwell taught that, quote, Real personal sacrifice never was placing an animal on the altar. Instead, it is the willingness to put the animal in us upon the altar and letting it be consumed. Spiritual Rebirth Within the Succession of Ordinances We return to the statement of the Prophet Joseph Smith that being born again comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances. Indeed, through the ordinances, we are repeatedly reborn, our nature transformed over and over as we experience the cleansing justification of the spirit of christ the symbolism of death and resurrection through the baptism of water the new life granted us when we receive the gift of the holy ghost the spiritual and physical renewal of the initiatory ordinances and the unfolding stages of the drama of our existence in the endowment indeed the endowment itself enacts our individual progress through multiple rebirths from the spiritual spirit world to mortal life and from thence to becoming the sons and daughters of Christ, and ultimately of the Father himself, receiving all the blessings of the firstborn. Similarly, by the end of Moses 6, Adam had not only been born of water and of the Spirit, but also born of God, having entered his presence as Alma did. In the words of Alma, For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, behold, many have been born of God, and have tasted as I have tasted, and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Therefore they do know of the things of which I have spoken, as I do know, and of the knowledge, and the knowledge which I have is of God. Changes in name and relationship that accompany changes in state. For each change of state that should accompany one's progression through the ordinances, the Father grants a corresponding change in name and relationship to him. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, Quote, God turns tools into servants, servants into friends, and friends into sons. Moses 6:67 6, and 68 makes it clear that to receive the fullness of the priesthood is to become, when divinely ratified, a son of God after the order of him who is without beginning of days or end of years. This is consistent with the experience of Adam in Moses 6:68 6, and the royal rebirth formula of Psalm 2, 7. Quote, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. End of quote. In Moses 5, seven, King Benjamin uses a temple setting and context to explain this same concept. Quote, and now, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him, and have become his sons and daughters. Significantly, King Benjamin not only goes on to say that those who keep the covenant will be found on the right hand of God, thus, in essence, receiving the name of their King Benjamin, which means Son of the Right Hand, but also that they are taking upon them, as royal sons and daughters, a title of the true Son of the Right Hand, namely Christ. In so doing, they were also to become, in likeness of Benjamin's son, little Mosiahs, meaning saviors, and in likeness of the only begotten, Son of God, little messiahs, meaning anointed ones. Having thus qualified, the Father might appropriately seal them his. Identification of the High Priest with the Lord Himself. To further emphasize that those who enter the oath and covenant of the priesthood do so in similitude of the Son of God, we note Margaret Barker's description of how the concept of becoming a Son of God can relate well both to ordinances in earthly temples and to actual ascents to the heavenly temple. Quote, The high priests and kings of ancient Jerusalem entered the Holy of Holies, and then emerged as messengers, angels of the Lord. They had been raised up, that is, resurrected. They were sons of God, that is, angels, and they were anointed ones, that is, messiahs. Human beings could become angels, and then would continue to live in the material world. This transformation did not just happen after physical death, it marked the passage from the life in the material world to the life of eternity. End of quote. Speaking of the figurative heavenly journey that was enacted in ancient temple ordinances, Matthew Bowen has argued elsewhere that both the king and the high priest, emerging from the Holy of Holies, were seen and worshipped as Yahweh the Lord. Consistent with this identification, Alma 13 specifically states that high priests were ordained, quote, in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to God's Son for redemption. End of quote. Moreover, the reason for ancient ordinances that the high priesthood associated with the temple were, give, was, were given was so quote, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God for a remission of their sins. The ontological change accompanying sonship is meant to be universal. Significantly, the last verse of Moses 6 includes the words, and thus may all become my sons. This statement relating to Adam's exaltation presages the account in the book of Moses of Enoch's adoption as a son of God with a right to God's throne. At the end of Moses 7:3 we read, quote, "And as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory." End of quote. The pseudepigraphal books of 2nd and 3rd Enoch purport to describe the process by which Enoch was literally clothed upon with glory in some detail. As a prelude to Enoch's introduction to the secrets of creation, both accounts describe a two-step initiatory procedure whereby the patriarch was first initiated by angels and after this by the Lord himself. In 2nd Enoch, God commanded his angels to, quote, "...extract Enoch from his earthly clothing and anoint him with my delightful oil." and put him into the clothes of my glory." Philippus Alexander speaks of this event as quote, "an ontological transformation that blurred the distinction between human and the divine, and the divine, amounting to deification." In the first chapter of the book of Moses, Moses underwent a similar transformation. He explained that had he seen God without such a change, he would have quote, "withered and died in his presence." but his glory was upon me, and I was transfigured before him. After Enoch was changed, he is said to have resembled God so exactly that he was mistaken for him by the angels. (coughs) Summarizing the ancient Jewish literature relevant to this passage, Charles Mopsick concludes that the exaltation of Enoch should not be seen as a unique event. Rather, he writes that the enthronement of Enoch is a prelude to the transfiguration of the righteous, and at their head the Messiah, in the world to come, a transfiguration that is the restoration of the figure of the perfect man, with a capital M. End of quote. In LDS theology, such a transformation is not the result of a capricious act of God, but rather a sign of love and trust, made in response to an individual's demonstration of a determination to serve God at all hazard, only such will be privileged to hear the personal oath from the Father himself that they shall obtain the fullness of the joys of the celestial kingdom forever and ever. Sanctification, Consecration, sho- Showbread, and the Sacrament Giving Our All Hugh Nibley sums up the principle of sanctification by the blood as follows, quote, The Gospel is more than a catalogue of moral platitudes. These are matters of either eternal life or nothing. Nothing less than the sacrifice of Abraham is demanded of us. But how do we make it? In the way Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah all did. Each was willing and expected to be sacrificed, and each committed his or her all to prove it. In each case the sacrifice was interrupted at the last moment, and a substitute provided to their relief. Someone else had been willing to pay the price, but not until after they had shown their good faith and willingness to go all the way. Lay not thy hand upon the lad, for now I know. Abraham had gone far enough. He had proven to himself and the angels who stood witness, we are told, that he was actually willing to perform the act. Therefore the Lord was satisfied with the token then, for he knew the heart of Abraham. This is the same for Isaac and Sarah and for us. And whoever is willing to make the sacrifice of Abraham to receive eternal life, will show it by the same signs and tokens as Abraham, for but he or she must do it in good faith and with real intent. End of quote from Hugh Nibley. Understanding the self-sacrifice required to become a saint enhances the meaning one can take away when participating in the ordinance of the sacrament. As we have argued earlier, the symbolism of the broken bread is strongly coupled with the initial covenant of Baptism. Both ordinances are a witness of one's intention to keep God's commandments, however, in light of the preceding discussion, we suggest that the emblems of the Lord's blood by which we are sanctified seem to provide a natural correspondence to the last and most difficult covenant of circumcision of consecration, as Hugo Peregos succinctly expressed the thought quote, through the partaking of consecrated bread and wine, we also consecrate ourselves. Such an understanding is consistent with the recent reemphasis of church leaders that quote, the sacrament is a beautiful time, not to not just renew our baptismal covenants, but to commit to Him to renew all our covenants. End of quote. It is evident that the saints witness in the second part of the sacrament that they are willing to take the Savior's name upon them in the essential. Though strictly limited, sense of accepting the blessing of justification made possible by his submitting his will to the will of the Father, even unto death. However, in the same act, they also affirm their personal willingness to submit to all things which the Lord seeth to to inflict upon them, even as a child doth submit to his Father, even unto death, thus preparing themselves for the blessings of sanctification that result from keeping the law of consecration. In short, the covenant not only to give away all their sins to know God, but also to undertake a deliberate and sustained effort to know God through giving their all. In the carefully measured, specifically tailored manner that God has ordained for those who would endeavor to follow Jesus to the end, disciples of Christ must be willing to suffer, sometimes unjustly and always uncomplainingly, that they, in likeness of Christ, might bring others to God. In the richly symbolic act, wherein the saints drink the emblems of sanctifying blood, they not only express their remembrance of and gratitude for the bitter cup that the Savior drank on their behalf, but also acknowledge that they are willing to drink to the dregs the individually prepared cup that they themselves have been given. Similarly, in John nineteen twenty-eight through 30, it is recorded that Jesus, as his last mortal act, before he declared, It is finished, and gave up to the ghost. Involuntary humiliation swallowed a mouthful of cheap wine from a sponge to fulfill the last iota of his prophetically foretold mission, knowing that all things were now accomplished. The Sacrament and the Temple Showbread The sacrament, like every ordinance, is retrospective. It looks back on all the covenants one has already made, And in addition, invites one to remember the unleavened bread of the Passover, the manna from heaven, and most pointedly, the life and atonement of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the true bread from heaven. Less recognized and discussed is the fact that the sacrament is also anticipatory, looking forward to the bounteous table of the heavenly feast that someday will be shared by sanctified souls. This feast has been the subject of prophecy from Old Testament times to the present. The bread and wine that will be shared at this eschatological event were symbolized in the furniture of Israelite temples. On the table of the showbread, or bread of the presence of the Lord, twelve loaves of unleavened bread and utensils for libations of wine and offerings of frankincense were continually set out within the holy place of the temple. A meal of the sacred bread and wine, anticipating a future feast that will take place in the full glory of the presence of God, was consumed each Sabbath by the temple priests. In contrast to this bread offered at the altar of sacrifice and the temple courtyard, which John S. Thompson viewed as a preparatory ironic, or perhaps more precisely Levitical, ordinance, the offering of showbread and wine set out in the temple proper emulates the Melchizedek feast of bread and wine provided by the priest and king of that name when Abraham received the fullness of the high priesthood at his hands. It is likely that the feast shared by Moses and his companions when he was called to meet Jehovah face to face at the top of Mount Sinai was seen as the literal equivalent of the meal that was later ritually typified at the table in the holy place. In Exodus we read that Moses took with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and that together they saw the God of Israel, and ate and drank with him. According to Brant Peter, who has ably summarized the current scholarly consensus that the description of Jesus' actions in the Gospel mirror the profile of the long-awaited new prophet-like Moses who was described in Deuteronomy 18.15. Jesus' blessing of the bread and wine at the Last Supper did not merely follow the pattern of Passover traditions, but also paralleled in significant ways the experience of Moses and his fellows in their ascent of Sinai to feast at the Divine Table. Note that in contemporaneous Jewish writings, Moses was described not only as a prophet, priest, and king, but also, like Jesus, as a God, having been changed into the divine through his initiation into the mysteries. Like Jesus, Moses was described as a hierophant leading his disciples through these same mysteries so that they could also see God. The deliberate conflation of the offerings on the temple table of showbread with the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper by the early Christian Church, is demonstrated by the image shown here. The three registers represent respectively the temple courtyard at bottom, the holy place in the middle, and the holy of holies at the top. The ostensible subject of this illustration is Moses, shown here as a type of Christ, who in the top register, accompanied by Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, shown as types of Peter, James, and John, approaches the Lord, whose head appears in a cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. Within the cave in the middle scene is a gathering of Christians who, following the pattern of ancient Israel, hear a reading of the law and make covenants under the direction of Christ, shown here as the new Moses. The items on the altar clearly indicate indicate a Christian Eucharist, which is here equated to the offerings on the table of showbread. In the bottom register, a Christianized version of the tabernacle courtyard is shown. Note the prominent gamedia, or squares, at the corner of the altar cloth with its central circular rosette. The same rosette with the border matching the gamedia is repeated on the parted veil. The pattern of the cloth strongly resembles depictions of altar cloths in two 6th century Ravenna mosaics. In Roman Catholic tradition, the cloth used for church altars is said to have been patterned after the burial garment of Christ, and garments with similar motifs have been found in Christian burial grounds in Egypt. In the scene shown here, the Christian leaders of the new Israel part the outer veil, earnestly inviting all those outside the covenant to enter and begin their ascent. An earlier link between the showbread and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper appears in the Gospels as part of a passage where Jesus speaks explicitly about the bread of the presence with reference to his disciples' act of plucking and eating grain on the Sabbath. According to Brad Peter, Jesus' words explicitly linked The priestly identity of himself and his disciples with the sacrificial bread of the presence, just as he later equated his body and blood with the bread and wine he blessed in the upper room. In light of all these considerations, we conclude that the symbolism of the bread and wine blessed by the Lord at the Last Supper, while not inappropriately taken up in the modern LDS sacrament administered by those holding the Aaronic priesthood, should also be studied in connection with ritual practices at the temple table of showbread, and its symbolic association with the priesthood of Melchizedek. In the early years of the restored church, the symbolism of the eschatological heavenly feast typified by the priestly meal of the temple showbread seems to have been carried forward in priesthood gatherings where the portions of bread used for the sacrament were sometimes large enough to constitute a meal. For example, Zebedee Coltrane stated that meetings of the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, quote, the sacrament was also administered at times when Joseph appointed, after the ancient order, that is, warm bread to break, easy was provided, and broken into pieces as large as my fist, and each person had a glass of wine and sat and ate the bread and drank the wine. And Joseph said that this was the way that Jesus and his disciples partook of the bread and wine, and this was the order of the church anciently, until the church went into darkness." End of quote. When the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated in 1893, one witness recorded in his journal that, quote, each participant was given a large tumbler with the Salt Lake Temple etched into it and a napkin. Presiding Bishop Preston blessed the bread and Dixie wine from southern Utah, and the brethren were invited to eat until they were filled, but to use caution and not indulge in wine to excess, end of quote. There are other reasons, besides the substantial meal of bread and wine that was sometimes consumed for the sacrament on sacred occasions, to believe that Joseph Smith might have viewed the administration of the ordinances of the sacrament in temple contexts, under the direction of the presiding high priest of the modern church, as part of what Hugo A. Perego calls a pre-sanctification experience. Such experiences were meant to resemble, in additional respects, the events of the Last Supper. Elaborating on this point, Perego notes that, quote, In the Kirtland Temple and in the School of the Prophets, the ordinance of washing of feet was accompanied by the partaking of the sacrament, just like the events that took place in the upper room as recorded in the New Testament. The partaking of bread and wine in remembrance of the Savior could not therefore be extrapolated as a stand-alone ritual, but as an intrinsic and vital component with all other rites introduced while feasting on that last meal. Conclusion Anticipating the Heavenly Feast. One of the most stunning archaeological finds of the last century was the accidental discovery in 1920 of the ruins of Dura Europos, located on a cliff 90 meters above the Euphrates River in what is now Syria. Among the structures uncovered by excavation was a small Jewish synagogue with elaborately painted walls. Preserved only because the building had been filled with earth as a fortification, during the city's destruction by siege. The art of the dura Europos Synagogue constitutes the most convincing physical evidence available that the Jewish mysteries described in ancient sources had a tangible expression in ritual. As a conclusion to the present study, we will describe the most prominent mural of that synagogue, which highlights participation of gathered Israel in the heavenly feast as the high point of Jewish anticipation for the last days. After a study of the paintings of the synagogue, Hugh Nibley concluded that the most important representation of all is the central composition that crowns the Torah Shrine, the ritual center of the synagogue. This mural had been repainted several times until it finally pleased whoever was designing it. The successful alterations show that great attention was paid to the problem of what should be represented in it. Although the mural represents a single overall scene, it is divided into upper and lower parts by a horizontal band. The lower part depicts key events from Israel's past, and the upper part its future as envisioned by prophecy. The major theme of the composition is the restoration and exaltation of gathered Israel in the last days and fulfillments of God's everlasting covenant. At lower left, Jacob is shown lying on his bed while he gives his last blessing to his twelve sons. At lower right his blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh is depicted. The top portion of the mural depicts the realization of these promised blessings. The thirteen who had been blessed by Jacob, the sons of Israel with Ephraim and Manasseh represented Joseph in double measure, are exalted in the presence of God and his two divine throne attendants equated here to the seraphim. Spanning the upper and lower scenes is a tree It is rooted in the foundational stories of the covenants and promised blessings of Israel and leads to the throne on high. In this respect, it might be seen as an arboreal rod of iron, akin to the symbolism of ancient and Jewish and Christian wooden ladders of ascent. Erwin Goodenough concluded that this central figure represents both a tree and a vine, and Hugh Nibley agreed, observing that such imagery is paralleled in the Book of Mormon. Quote, The olive tree that stands for Israel in the Book of Mormon imagery is also a vine. It grows in a vineyard, is planted, cultivated, and owned by the Lord of the vineyard. (coughs) The potential for double meaning in the tree vine was highlighted by Goodenough. He maintained that it might have been more natural for Jewish and Christian viewers alike to conclude that it represented the power of the hope of Israel, that was to be demonstrated in the manifestation of the Messianic Redeemer of Israel than it would have been for them to see the tree vine as representing only Israel itself as a people. (coughs) If the vine referred to the divine power made available to take one to heaven, the chances are overwhelming that the vine meant here not Israel itself but the hope of Israel The hope that Jews would come to salvation through the Jewish God who was to his people what the vine represented to others. Quote, I am the vine and ye are the branches, may originally have been a mystic description of the relation between God and Israel. The Gospel of John goes further with this kind of imagery when it explicitly describes the person of Jesus as the only means by which disciples could make their climb to heaven. Alluding to the multiple deceits practiced in the story of Israel, or Jacob, and Laban, Jesus praised the approaching Nathanael at their first meeting, saying, Behold an Israelite, in other words, a descendant of Jacob, indeed, in whom there is no guile. Then, referring to the ladder of Jacob's dream, on which angels ascended and descended, Jesus solemnly asserted his preeminence over the revered patriarch, declaring that he was the ladder of heavenly ascent, Personified, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Later in John, when Thomas asked Jesus how his disciples would know the way to his Father's house, Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In further consideration of the messianic significance of the central feature of the most important mural of the synagogue, we should not neglect the additional clues about the priesthood and kingship that are embedded within the depiction of the tree vine. Goodenough concluded that the Orpheus figure seated in the branches at left and playing a harp was probably called David, who is shown here in a priestly role, provided heavenly saving music through which Israel could be glorified. Kurt Schubert, stressing the aspects of the mural relating to kingship, saw the lion to the right of David as a symbol of the King Messiah figure seated in the throne in the upper register. It was out of the tribe of Judah, the lion's whelp of Jacob's blessing, that this King Messiah, the literal descendant and regal heir of David, was to come. In addition, Schubert saw the depiction of the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh as a probable reference to the second messianic figure, the Messiah from the house of Joseph or Ephraim, was destined to suffer and die. The beauty and comprehensiveness of the mural in its representation of the past and future of gathered, glorified Israel is stunning. All we are missing is the bread and wine of the heavenly feast. Or are we? In his careful examination of the layers of repainting in the mural, Goethe recognized an intermediate design that included figures flanking each side of the tree vine. Goodenough saw ritual significance in these figures, taking the objects on the table to the left of the trunk to represent ceremonial bread, and objects on a table and the serpent-topped felines to the right as decorations for a wine bowl. In the later final version of the mural, concluded Goodenough, the symbol of bread and wine could be assumed, having been assimilated into the tree vine itself. In Israel's exalted state, standing at the top of the tree vine, They could partake continually of its fruit. Thus the eschatological tree of life was now merged with its protological counterpart. For the Jews of Dura-Europos, the dual anticipatory roles of David, the priest and king, who had eaten the priestly showbread and later was made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, were actualized in the messianic figure on the mural's throne. For Christians... This long-awaited Messiah had already appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, the long-looked-for root of David, who was also the son of David, the kingly lion of the tribe of Judah, and the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, whose body and blood, typified in bread and wine, would sanctify not only his disciples, but also the very earth. It is this same Jesus Christ, who is destined to come quickly in the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory, may we keep every ordinance and covenant we have received, that when the time comes we may be numbered with the Sanctified, who will drink of the fruit of the vine, the emblems of his blood, with him on the earth. Christ. This has been a recording of By the Blood Year Sanctified, the symbolic, salvific, interrelated, Additive, retrospective, and anticipatory nature of the ordinances of spiritual rebirth in John 3 and Moses 6, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and Matthew L. Bowen. Originally published in an interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture, volume 24, 2017. Read by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.